0: I'll give you a minute to look that up. The Red Pew Bibles are in front of you there. Jesus is presented to the temple. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Anna, the daughter of Nefuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she came, gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem." When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. If
1: you would pray with me. God, our Father, as we come and sit under your word, I pray that you might be near to us and teach us, that you might draw us ever onward and closer to Christ, that you would be with us sinners as we sit under your word, that we might be ready to learn from it. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is it, guys. It's Christmas, right? Christ has come. We're going to celebrate that fact this morning. But as we do, and as I was reflecting on this last text in our series where we've looked at these different just familiar stories about Christmas, I want to admit something about my own heart, right? So I, um, I kind of love the anticipation of the Christmas season. I love the, you know, the buying the presents and the decorating your house and the putting up your Christmas tree and all of the chaos and work even that it gives. Um, I love it. Cooking the food, getting ready, But in that last day or two before Christmas and on the morning of Christmas Day, I also sort of dread it. Not that I dread Christmas, right? It's beautiful and great, but I dread it because it's almost over and I never really like what comes afterwards. Have you had that experience? You know what I'm talking about? We anticipate and we prepare and we celebrate and then it's back to business as usual. I mean, maybe you've got a few New Year's plans to kind of, you know, add an extra week that you can push it off, but soon enough, right, it's January, the presents are all open and half of them are broken and the family has all gone back home and it's cold outside and bleak and the snow that glittered in those Christmas lights is now that like brown slush on the streets that gets into your shoes. Life is still like it's always been. And I mentioned that here this morning not to detract from the celebration of Christmas. It should be celebrated and celebrated fully. But I think that tension that some of us feel as we're celebrating it, both the joy but also the dread of what to come, that tension is actually in Christmas itself. That we're celebrating the coming of Jesus and our Savior's birth But he's not here right now, not physically. That's one of the realities of the the time in which we live, that Christ has come and he will come again. And he is really with us in his spirit, but he's not here. He's still someone we're waiting for to return. That's something still to come, which means that as much as we're celebrating Jesus' arrival at Christmas, that he's here, we're also waiting for him to be here. You can't really separate the two. And so this morning, I want us to turn to two final characters in the Christmas story that really highlight that theme of waiting. They're the ones we heard about here, about how to wait. So let's start in our text, looking first at verse 22. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem. To present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So this is setting the stage, right? This is the background for our story. Jesus' parents bring him to the temple. And that's a thing that you're always supposed to do in their world with your firstborn son. They take him to the temple and they offer this offering for him. Just one note on that offering, if you go back and read Leviticus 12, where it's quoting from here. um, The normal offering for a firstborn child is actually a lamb and a pigeon or dove, and then it gives a provision at the end of that that says that if you're too poor to afford that, you can offer two pigeons or doves instead. So that's just a good reminder, right, again in this story, that Jesus is coming in this kind of humble situation, right, that they're having to take the exception clause for poor people when they take him to dedicate him at the temple. But that said, in verse 25, we've got that as our scene, we move into the meat of the story then, right? There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He'd waited for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. So we meet Simeon. and Simeon, this text says, he's a righteous and devout guy. He's deeply committed to God and is seeking to follow him. And he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is a weird phrase that we probably don't understand. But here's the deal, all right? Israel, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, Israel, God's people, right, that, that he's kind of working in the world through, they have been in exile for a long time. They had this exile for more than 400 years, after Jerusalem was sacked and um, the nation was broken. For 70 years, they were in sort of, I guess you could call it proper exile, right? Where Jerusalem was basically empty and they were all slaves in Babylon. And then after that, there's this kind of partial restoration, which you read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament, where some people got to come back, sort of, but they're still under foreign rule. And um, they don't have a king. Um, Israel is not kind of set apart as God's people the way they feel like they're supposed to be. It goes from being ruled by one oppressive empire to the other, which right now is Rome. And Simeon walks to the temple in, every morning, right? He'd still see those signs of exile. He'd still see Roman centurions standing around as he walked up the hill towards the temple in the way that Jerusalem was built. The, the, the gigantic garrison castle thing of the empire was on the very next hill, and you'd see it as you ascended. But more than that, we said a few weeks ago, this image of exile was something that for Simeon and other people who served the Lord— was bigger than Israel's political situation. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a sense that God's people, Israel, they're they're meant to be for the nations, for this mission that God has for them. That the world is broken and full of sin, and that they're supposed to be this kingdom of priests, as Exodus 19 puts it. God blesses them in order to bless the world. Genesis 12, at the very beginning of the call of Abraham, I will make you... Into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So, that political exile, right, that's not just sort of a problem in itself, but that's a symptom of a deeper problem, a fuller failure to serve God's purpose, to be on God's mission of blessing the nations. That God's whole reason for exiling them, in fact, if you read the prophets, was that they had this mission and they failed to do it. They followed after the nations rather than calling the nations to follow God. And because of that, God broke the special relationship they had. So Simeon, when it talks about him waiting for the consolation of Israel, all that's to say, he's waiting for all of that to end, right? So he's waiting, he's certainly longing for certain political realities to change, but more than that, he's longing for God's mission to get back on track. That God's people, he wants to be restored in relationship with God. And restored to serving their purpose in the world. To serve as a light to the nations so that the nations might be gathered in. And Simeon's been waiting for a long time. It's implied in this text that he is an old man, right? At least that's the impression we get judging by the fact that he's waiting to die. You know, I don't know many 25-year-old guys who are expecting, you know, they're just holding out to die until the Messiah comes. Um, He's waiting for this coming of Israel's king, the Messiah. And he has this promise given to him by God that he'll see it, but he's been waiting for a long time. And that had to be hard, right? It's easy, I think, again, to read these characters in the Bible and read them as kind of mythological people. But this is an actual dude who for years and years is stuck waiting. He's a devout man, but he's a man all the same. And so he had to wonder if that was ever going to happen, if restoration was ever going to come. If God could really be trusted, right? He had to wonder sometimes if this message he supposedly had from the Holy Spirit might just be some imaginary voice in his head. And then he meets Jesus. And in that moment, it seems, everything changes for him. He suddenly knows that this child is the one that he's been waiting for. And here's what he says. He says in verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon gives thanks to God for this child, and he identifies a number of things about Jesus. He calls him God's salvation, God's rescue, that in Jesus, God is coming to rescue his people at last. He probably means in part a rescue from oppression But like we said, Simeon is the kind of person who recognizes that that's really just a symptom of this deeper failure and exile that God's people need to be saved from. That it is also the causes that need to be healed. That God is coming in salvation not just to rescue Israel from Rome, but from their own sin. Their own sin that caused the exile in the first place. That becomes clear in the next lines. This child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to God's people. So that mission we mentioned, that Israel is called to show God to the nations so that the nations might learn to follow after God, that somehow in this child, that mission is also happening too and being completed. That, that, that it's all the nations seeing God's glory shown to his people, which sounds awesome, Right? We read this first half of what Simeon says, and we're like, yeah, that sounds great. He's pretty jazzed. But then he keeps talking, and things get a little muddier in verse 33. So, so the child, child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, right? They're probably like, yeah, sweet. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. I kind of love this. So, Mary and Joseph are pumped from this amazing prophecy, and Simeon blesses them, and then he says some less than amazing sounding things. First, he says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And this isn't a picture of happy bliss. It it evokes one of the images Jesus often uses of himself from the Old Testament, that of a stone that people stumble upon, that causes them to fall. Here's how Isaiah pictures it when God comes in the Messiah. He says, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared captured. So this isn't just sort of happy good news. God is coming in salvation. Jesus will complete God's mission, but that's going to shake stuff up, Simeon says. Many of those in exalted places are going to fall on him, even as many who are lowly are lifted up. And he goes on to make that even clearer. He's destined to be a sign that will be spoken against. It's not just that Jesus is going to trip people up. It's that he's actually going to tick them off. That they're not going to like him very much. That the world will oppose him. Some of God's people will oppose him. Light and glory has come. and Some folks are really going to be unhappy about that fact. And ultimately he says grief will come to Mary as well. A sword will pierce your own soul too. It's almost certainly a reference to Jesus' crucifixion to his ultimate death through which this salvation comes. But it's also a description of an emotional reality that Mary will experience both at the crucifixion and really throughout her life, right? That she's not going to just sit at home thrilled at the life that her son is called to. That she's going to be grieved and wounded by the course that he's called to take. All of which sounds kind of unhappy, honestly. None of that sounds like the amazing days of salvation that Simeon starts with. It sounds like conflict and suffering and people getting stabbed to death. So how can Simeon say those two things at the same time, right? That's really the question I found myself pondering from this text. How can he say those two things at the same time? I think it's because Simeon's actually trying to teach us something really important. And let me try to show it to you, all right? So in Simeon's days, here's how most people thought about history, They believed that right now, they are in the bad times. The Bible would call that this age, all right? And that means more than just the present. It's trying to describe an era, a time period. And this era, this age is characterized by sin and sadness and exile and oppression. And in the future, they said, there was the age to come. And that was when things would be good again. That was the age of salvation and joy and life and freedom. It's what they were looking forward to. And what most people expected... In Simeon's world, what probably Mary and Joseph expected even was that the Messiah, the Christ, would come and that would be the turning point. This age would be over and the age to come would begin. Everything would instantly change and all that's dark and sad would be light and happy. And I'll just note, we all recognize it didn't happen with the Messiah and we can kind of scoff at those people, but I think modern Christians often do exactly the same thing if it's salvation that we put there instead of the Messiah as the turning point. We too often fall into this trap that, it, that sort of there's this dark, miserable life before Jesus and we meet him and everything is instantly supposed to be happy and beautiful and joyful. But what Simeon seems to be saying in this prophecy is that that view is wrong, okay? Somehow as Jesus comes, we see two things be true at the same time. One is that we see some of the age to come really being here, right? There's salvation and light and glory, but there's also sin and conflict and death, both together. And this is because, as scripture plays out, we realize that this chart is wrong, and it should actually look like this instead. Those two circles aren't separate, that they overlap. Here, at the beginning of where they merge, is where Jesus comes It's Christmas, right? And so what Simeon's welcoming God's work of salvation and God's mission. They're really underway. The age to come is really underway. But this age won't end until Jesus' return over on the far side of it. That this process of salvation won't be complete until then. Which is to say that we do not live just in this age or in the age to come as believers in the world, or within our own lives. What we live in is the overlap of the ages. The overlap of the ages. So what do we do with that? What is that meant to teach us? Let me offer kind of just two conclusions that I think we're meant to draw from that reality and from the way Sumian portrays our lives. The first one is that the work of salvation is not finished. The work of salvation is not finished. There's a sort of triumphalism of expecting too much of this age that can creep into how we think about Christianity. We can think that if we just got a few things fixed, we, there would be true happiness and fulfillment and peace and prosperity and joy that we could somehow enjoy right now if we just got things together. There are people who want to sell you books that will tell you exactly that and they're the kind of books that Americans love and Jesus hates, right? That if you just have enough faith maybe just give them a little bit of money, that that you can have the age to come right now. (laughs) But that just isn't where we live, all right? That's taking the first half of Simeon's words without considering the second half. We are still in a world under the curse of sin, in bodies that are perishing, and the devil is still prowling and seeking who he may devour. Presenting Christianity as if by becoming a Christian or figuring out some Christian secret, those realities will cease. That's just not true. It's actually important for us to remember in our daily lives, I think. Here's what I mean. We, all of us, struggle with sin, right? We all struggle with sin. If you're a Christian and you're seeking after holiness, you do. You're seeking to turn away from sin and to follow after God, but it's a stumbling and a halting kind of seeking, isn't it? You feel like you're running that race with a limp. And one of the things that's so destructive but that I find myself believing is that that struggle is a sign of failure. That I'm not a very good Christian because I stumble and limp as I seek to follow God. That if I really had faith, that if I really loved Jesus, then my walk would be different and easier. But that's a lie. Because what I'm really saying in that moment is that I should be living in the age to come. That this age should be gone. I became a Christian and my life should just be, you know, poof, in that second circle. But that isn't where we are. We're in the overlap of the ages. And in the overlap of the ages, struggle is the sign of success, not a failure of success. Let me, let me show you, listen to how the author of Hebrews describes the Christian life, Right? He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That's a familiar verse to many of us, but I think we often hear it wrong. What I I think I naturally hear when I hear that verse is the Bible saying, Gosh, Christians, just shake off your sin and go jogging. But that's not actually what it says. Here's why. Here's why. That's not meant to describe something that's happening in the past for us. That's not meant to describe sort of like a single decision we make in our lives. That's meant to be describing what we have to seek to do every day. The author of Hebrews in that very chapter is using struggle as an image of our present reality. He uses the example of Christ and says this is an encouragement. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Which is to say, he's saying, not that you're done struggling, he's saying, you are struggling with sin, and your hope is that it hasn't killed you yet. right? The Bible's image of running the race, when we read that, of shaking off sin and that which hinders, this is what it really is if you read that Hebrews 12 right. It's that you're running a marathon and there's this like, this like giant octopus sin monster behind you and it's constantly trying to grab you and trip you up, right? And so its tentacles are like sweeping at your feet and they're wrapping around you and you're constantly having to dodge and shake free every day. That's the kind of race that we are running right now. One more picture from the chapter of Hebrews. It says a little later, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The first part of that's from Proverbs, a call to follow after God, as imaged as like making a level path for your feet. But it says we need to do that so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And again, there's this hope of healing, right? That's the place that we're heading towards, the age to come. But we are not the healed in this verse. We are the lame. <laughs> we are Um, our present reality is that we are people who are clawing our way along that ground seeking after healing. Our only hope is that that's still the race that we're on. All of which is to say that if you struggle to follow Christ, then welcome to Christianity. (laughs) Don't be discouraged by that fact. That is what it means to follow after him. In fact, the time you should be worried if you feel like you aren't struggling to lead the Christian life. Because that is not a sign of holiness. That is a sign of making peace with your flesh. Quit trying, that you've quit trying to run the race. Our calling is not to success or victory in this age. Our calling, as, Paul, or as the author of Hebrews said it there, is to perseverance. And victory will come to us as we persevere in the age to come. All right, so we need to remember that the work of salvation is not finished. And that should encourage us as we struggle in this present reality, right? That's speaking to the truth of that tension that I feel when I confront the holidays. But at the same time, it is Christmas, y'all, right? (laughs) And while our salvation is not completed, one of the things we celebrate this day is that it has begun. Our salvation has begun. And this little child Simeon holds, is the salvation of all mankind. This Jesus will live the perfect life we should have lived, and he will die the death that we should have died, and he will rise from the dead in a resurrection that gives us a surety of ours. There's a sense in which our salvation in that is future, yes, right? The final judgment has not come and declared our innocence. The grave still has a passing claim on us. Sin is still something that we struggle with. But the final word on all of those battles has been spoken and God has spoken in each of them salvation in Jesus Christ. And this little child, Simeon holds, is the realization of God's mission. I mean, I don't know if you ever think about this. I feel like we live in this kind of deep pessimism about the future of Christianity. But it is proven that God is at work on this mission to change and bless the nations. If you just look around you this morning, because we live, we're worshiping God on a continent that Simeon didn't know existed, right? Right? And, and when he's greeting the baby Jesus in the temple, like, my ancestors were in northern Russia sacrificing infants to tree gods. Like, the gospel has come as far as people like us, and as far as all of these other corners of the world, that somehow this mission that was such a failure that God's people were languishing in exile has now gone forward, and we see God's people in all kinds of tribes and tongues and nations on the earth. It's happening all around us. And again, it's not finished yet. The glory of the Lord doesn't fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. His kingdom of peace is still so far off in so many ways. But through Jesus' coming, the gospel has come with power and is actually at work among the nations. In this little child that Simeon holds, God himself has come to earth. He has stepped down from the heavenly throne room and become a human being. And that changes everything. Not that everything has been changed, but that because of him, everything is changing. And in the end, everything will change. There's this moment in the Lord of the Rings books, in the Return of the King, that I was thinking about. And Gandalf, who's this uh, wizard angel guy, for those of you who aren't familiar with the books, um, he he dies from fighting this shadow demon thing called a Balrog, and I'm making this sound really nerdy. And anyway... um, Gandalf returns later in the story, all right, and shortly after his return, he and some of the, you know, some of the other characters of the book are in the city called Minas Tirith, and the evil armies of Mordor are marching out, and there's this grim darkness that oppresses all of them, and Pippin, who's one of the characters, he's a hobbit, um, This is, man, the more words I put in here, the more nerdy it sounds. But it's awesome, okay? You should read it if you've never read The Lord of the Rings. But Pippin is sitting, talking with a couple of soldiers of Gondor, and they're despairing of any hope. And then in this moment, Pippin says, no, and he jumps up and he says, no, my heart will not yet despair. Gandalf fell and has returned and is with us. And we may stand, if only on one leg, or at least be left still upon our knees. And I love that moment because even though the darkness is on the rise, because Gandalf is there with them, Pippin was confident that they could fight on and that the outcome was sure. Now that quote's actually got a lot of spiritual weight. But here's why I was thinking about it this Christmas. This is the posture for us as Christians. We are still facing the battle, right? There is still a darkness that hangs over us and a sadness and a weight. We are in the overlap of the ages and this age still grasps at us and tries to drag us down. But this is the day that we declare that Jesus Christ has come, that he has come, and so we can stand. Even if on one leg, even if only on our knees, we can stand against the darkness. Because his great work of salvation has begun. And as surely as he started it, he will carry it on to completion. So this Christmas, and in those kind of bleak January days afterwards, don't feel like you have to hide from the darkness. Don't be surprised by it, right, when the season and our lives are bleak and cold. But stand firm in the hope that as much as it is true that this age is still a heavy and dark place, It is even more true that the age to come has arrived and that while we now live in the overlap of the ages, someday this age will finally dissolve and the age to come will be ushered in. That this child we celebrate lived and died and rose again for our salvation. That he now reigns at the right hand of the Father and is bringing all things under subjection under his feet and that he will return to finally and fully end this age and usher in glory. Celebrate that hope this Christmas. Would you pray with me? Oh, God and Father, I acknowledge the weight and the sadness that I can feel in this world, but I hope in your son. I confess that, um, yeah, you have come. Everything is changing, and everything will in the end be changed. Make that all of our hope and trust, this season and every day. Pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?